Hello and welcome to this interview uh, with George of The Tin Men. Thank you very much for coming down the line, mate. I know our studio is a little bit out of the way, so it's a pain in the Happy back. Happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, Thanks so, for inviting me. Yeah, well, we've, we've run into each other at a few events now, thanks to our, our mutual friend, Chris Williamson. And I have to say, I really appreciate the kind of content that you put out on Instagram. You've unlocked how to use the text-based, very information-heavy posts on a very superficial image-based platform. You're up to about 60K now, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, just about. Yeah, and so, so for those who aren't really familiar with your posts, they can go and check it out in the description, but... What was the motivation for starting a men's advocacy Instagram account and why has it taken off to such an extent? Well, I mean, fundamentally, there was, I felt there's a gap in the market for well-meaning discourse for men and boys, especially within the left, the left-leaning space, uh, the so-called progressive space. Uh, I wanted to talk about men and boys outside of feminist viewpoints and God help anyone that tries to do that. I promise you, it's, it's no easy thing to do. But I mean, I had over lockdown, I'm a, I'm a professional creative by trade. And obviously a lot of work disappeared of lockdown. So I needed something to do with my time. Uh, so I had time, I had the skills, I had lots of motivation from being very frustrated by my, my liberal progressive friends and, and what I saw was a continual failure and betrayal of men and boys. And also I'm, I, I grew up with quite thick skin. Like my, my parents um, really taught me the value of being balanced and understanding and not reacting so emotionally and like uh, having a sense of balance and um, doing the hard work I think that is required to talk about these issues because I mean men and boys ad advocacy was incorrectly seen as sort of adjacent to some of the the worst people imaginable like you're called like a white supremacist or even like a Nazi misogynist and there's a massive brand identity crisis around men and boys advocacy that were taking these issues that are very very important very compelling and around which there's significant data substantiating them and they, they fell flat because of brand identity of men and boys advocacy is seen as just something horrific but I don't think it needs to be and I was like someone in my skill set and my time might be able to do a little bit to help change how we see men and boys advocacy and I've had some amount of success I wouldn't say I've unlocked it just yet but I'm certainly trying to find the right combination of words and ideas and visuals and creative strategies to help people have a bit more compassion for men and boys than they already have and maybe widen the conversation a little bit more than it already is. Yeah you've certainly been one of the celestial bodies orbiting Chris's <laughs> project which he's calling third wave manosphere i know that you've quibbled <laughs> about whether or not that's the that's the best brand identity to go with but hey it's the, it's the one we're stuck with right now as mm. to where we're, we're transitioning away from some of the unhealthier figures like the, the epoch defining post-pandemic figure that is is tate and moving yeah. towards a sort of healthier discourse of of mutual intrasexual solidarity which i think is a, a much better way of doing things it's just about diffusing those antagonisms from the liberal gatekeepers i mean Absolutely. have you read caitlin moran's recent book by any chance i uh, i haven't but i know she follows me on instagram and i followed her for a bit and then i'm sorry if i, unf <laughs> I unfollowed her but I'm, I'm aware of who she is she's i think what she does is better than what it was but i don't think it's good enough is what i've heard but i imagine it's not to your liking no, it's, I think that she's sincere in that she actually cares about mm. boys and men. But what she does is she tries to mutate them into like pseudo women by saying yeah. you've just got to sit around and talk about your yeah. emotions all the time. And, and, yeah. and men, are, men are basically like dogs. And it's like, well, thanks. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I really appreciate that. Could you, could you not have asked a bloke what he wants instead, please? Mm. Yeah, and I find discourse is obviously um, very much laden with shaming language. Uh, dramatic worldviews i'd call them there's a really great book by hans rosling called fact um 
factfulness. And he talks about being very skeptical of traumatic worldviews. And these things like the patriarchy, it's extremely dramatic and vague worldview that I don't accept, which is also the same reason why I don't like the, the concept of manosphere. Because I feel like this is so spooky sounding and doesn't need to be so scary and dramatic and again, or gendered. But um, yeah, I mean, Caitlin Moran seems to be grappling with trying to, trying to reconcile the issues that men and boys are going through without abandoning the feminist framework altogether. And I find that a lot of the more dogmatic parts of feminism just cannot accommodate men and boys' advocacy, despite, it doesn't matter how many facts or statistics you throw at them, it doesn't make sense, it doesn't work within that viewpoint. So she's done her best, I imagine, to do some crazy mental gymnastics, but it's never quite good enough because the actual fundamental concept of feminism in terms of the patriarchy does not make sense within men and boys' advocacy, in my opinion. And I'm sure we'll talk about that later. Well, yeah, with, with, the, with the patriarchy concept, I've always seemed to go, okay, so you're saying there's been a conspiracy across all times and all places where men want to put women down, and this somehow predates continents being discovered and languages being disentangled and instant communication, but humanity somehow, some kind of hive mind that acts in concert to keep women down, but it's mm. also entirely socially constructed and isn't rooted mm. in any biology. Uh, mm. How do you square that circle? So, well, I mean, I, to me. it's, it's certainly, I try not to give too many history lessons on my account because uh, that's not what I'm here to do. I'm talking about 2023, although, of course, the current day is informed by history. But I, I find, like, even historically speaking, although it was more patriarchal, I would say women were limited and held back, especially excluded from the workforce, not by men, but because of their reproductive system. And if you, actually, if you actually just think about what it was like 200 years ago, in the 1800s, uh, a child had a 50-50 chance of making it to its fifth birthday. So children would have to have several children. There was, no one went to school, so that, that mother had to educate all those children herself. She had to cook and clean and provide for those children without any of the sort of microwaves or you know, ovens that we have today. And it was a hard job. Like children are dying, having, and obviously childbirth is traumatic, and mothers often died themselves. They had to raise and educate these children like several at a time. And also that like pre-industrial revolution, like the work we're talking about wasn't like we're doing now where we can sit here typing away. <laughs> uh, it was hard. It was physically hard work, required lots of physical strength and stamina. And like if someone has to go and plow a field, that should obviously be the man because the man is obviously stronger and more physical and has a greater sense of stamina. And the woman is burdened more so by a reproductive system. So I would say there's a far better, more high definition discussion to be had around history that is apolitical and just a bit more common sense. And I know people say like white goods did more to liberate women than any, any feminist. And there was certainly some truth in that when you, when you consider how much labor saving those devices did for women and how much it helped them get out of home and back into the work, well, into the workforce for the first time. So I would, I'm an advocate of high resolution discussion that is apolitical and not, and not fundamentally about pitting women against men as the patriarchy too often does. Um, and, and, the more we go on, the more patriarchy theory just doesn't make sense. And we've got to see it as like a 50-year-old, very regressive ideology that doesn't really paint of any sort of detail and only causes like more and more anger and more and more erasure, of, especially of men and boys who are victims. Yeah, this is the Phyllis Schlafly quote of the washing machine has done more to liberate women than feminism. So yeah. my, my, my friend Mary Harrington's recent book went into the history of the development of feminism as a response to the Industrial Revolution where mm. Marx was writing about poor women who had to take their kids to the factory and drug them with opiates just to stop them crying so they could get on with industrial production. Of course, you can have a large-scale social movement that comes out of those difficult and painful situations and it might not have been the right response 
but mm. it was in some way inevitable because of the technology and the political circumstances mm. of the time. The problem that, that Mary says is that if feminism neglects mothers, then feminism has a motherhood problem. It's not that mothers have a feminism problem. And I would extend the same to the opposite sex. I mean, if, if feminism fails to consider men as human beings that actually women might mm. grow to like and love, then mm. feminism has an issue with men. And I think that we've seen virulent strains of, of misandry overhanging all of all of culture. I think this has contributed predominantly to a lot of the issues you talk about. For example, uh, last year in the US, it was the highest year on record for suicides, and it was particularly mm. pronounced among white men up to 45, particularly when they lose their job yeah. and when they, when they lose their spouse. So I think there is a, a real deep crisis of meaning that, as you alluded to in the start, and we'll disentangle your personal politics, because I think that we agree on the destination, but, but different directions of travel. Yeah, yeah. That, that leftists just aren't talking about. Other than shoe on head, no one's willing to address this. Other <laughs> than maybe Christina Ember that's slowly going, well, maybe we should ask the guys about this and let the guys take care of themselves. Right. Nobody's addressing it. What, why? Yeah. Why is there total tone-deaf silence on this? Um, I feel like the left, and I'm a member of the left as well, so put me on that roster, very thin-on-the-ground roster of well-meaning leftists who talk about men and boys. The leftists seem to be enamoured with identity politics and groups. And, and this, this conflation of leftism and liberalism is something I've, I've still yet to understand because those are very different things. Liberalism is all about the individual and the pursuit of happiness and about freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of markets. Leftism is not about any of that, really. It's about restricted speech, uh, big government, uh, socialism, uh, and, and it's also, also about groups. So obviously the group identity matters more than individual. So, I mean, I would say the left has a really hard time seeing men within the context of any sort of disadvantage because they're brought hook, line and sinker into a very narrow worldview where if you're a man, everything's excellent for, for everyone all of the time in every possible conceivable way. And obviously it's worth acknowledging there are advantages to being a man, but there are also disadvantages. Um, and the, the left's sort of very tribal way of thinking, very much about, very virtuous. It's like if someone is often more concerned about looking good than it is about doing good. And I feel like some of the things that I do that I think are doing good don't look good at all. They look very bad, very bad. Some of the things I say, very unpopular, very socially unpalatable. And I don't think the left are willing to take a step down from their soapbox and actually maybe have a few of the bitter pills they so willingly prescribe to everyone else. Like they, they demand accountability to everyone, for everyone other than themselves and their peers. And I'm like, it's just like a, it makes my mind want to explode with the amount of hypocrisy I see. But I, I find leftism and even more so liberalism is very much in my bones. And I, I really appreciate talking to people such as yourself because obviously we, there's lots of things we could disagree on. Um, but I'm glad that we agree on, on wanting to help men and boys in a meaningful way. And, I, and I'm, it's quite saddening that so many of the people that I have discussion with are on the right. And so many of the uh, research I see get published and so many of the newspapers that are talking about men and boys in a good way are on the, also on the right. And I, I find it very alienating, but at the same time, I do respect those of yourself who are willing to have me here. And <laughs> you and I aren't natural bedfellows, Connor, but I, I have a lot of respect for you simply for allowing this conversation to have place. Oh, I appreciate it, man. Thank you very much. And uh, it's always nice to, to catch up and have a, have a drink at events and that. I, I, think, I think maybe what might be the difference here and I think that you, in what you, in how you speak about these issues, you might have a more latent traditional strain than maybe you identify, is that the leftist materialist worldview, the strains of socialism and liberalism, are sort of traveling in the same direction, but they just disagree on how to get there. And the, the, mm. the Marxist tradition thinks violent revolution, 
Um, equality is engineered by a class that's stealing profit from the workers, therefore dictatorship of the proletariat, stateless classes, communism, hey presto. Whereas the liberals are going, okay, rising tide raises all ships, free markets, these are eternal principles that we hold to be self-evident, never mind of how we're going to justify them, it's just that this is all essentially a wish list of good things. And if we get to maximum prosperity and maximum freedom, everyone's going to live in harmony and we can disentangle all the, all the cultural issues that are a great big distraction. But from something that you said there, it's that in the pre-industrial economy, mm. gender wasn't really questioned because there no. were fundamental roles that men and women had to fulfill. And even though it was hard, just struggling for subsistence every day, and nobody wants to go back to a time of lower infant mortality, the roles were more clearly defined and you could be inextricable constituents of the same household. This is something that Ivan Illich wrote about in Gender. And so if those gender roles are shaped by time, place, technological constraints, how do you get those concrete, meaningful gender roles back when we have dislodged ourselves from the kind of restrictions that made them? That's what I think the right is focusing on. I think the right's going, well, this is how men and women were shaped. Going mm. away from how we were shaped has made us miserable. But how do we get back to that without like the Chinese EMPing us back to the Stone Age or something mad like that? Do you know what I mean? This is, this is what I think we need to work out a little bit. Because what, what, what are like the leftist solutions to these problems? Well, I mean, I guess fundamentally talking about outcomes and opportunities, like we can, you and I probably differ on how much we think there are such things as male and female behavior. I do believe there is such thing as male behavior and I do believe there's such thing as female behavior. And I believe those two things overlap. So there are certainly more effeminate uh, men and more masculine women. But in general, I would say men and women are different uh, on average. And um, not all of that is cultural. A lot of that is biological. That's why I am like very much in the middle. But whether you think that all men are different to all women or they're roughly the same, that the solution is, is always the same solution. The solution is allow women and men to do whatever they want. Give them equality of opportunity in as much as possible. But we shouldn't then expect them to, to come out at 50-50 in every possible conceivable way. So regardless of how or if we dif differ in our sort of belief in sort of traditional roles i'd hope we agree on the solution being that any woman or any man should be able to do whatever they want with their life but we shouldn't expect them all to make the exact same decision in the exact same numbers in every single possible way yeah i do think that's part of the problem with modern feminism i mean one of the one of the people that's been great on this recently even though her party seems to be going unanimously against her is miriam cates of where she's been doing internal polling and talking about family tax planning, everything from, from ARC to NatCom, getting excoriated by both The Guardian and the very materialistic Jeremy Hunt types on the front bench who just want to influx women back into the workforce when a vast majority of women are turning around and saying, actually, I'd like to have children and more children if I already have children, if the economic circumstances were permitting it, but because of restricted access to housing and the necessity to get straight back to work just to afford everything and the costs of childcare when I'd actually rather be at home raising my own kids rather than just palming them off on someone who isn't paid very much to take care of them, well, I, I can't have any more. And so I think, yeah, free choice is important, but it's also looking at how the government is and, and various cultural and economic pressures are clamping down on those choices that actually men and women say they want, largely in line with the, their biology, and they're being obstructed from bringing those to fruition. I, yeah, I do feel that like there is a lot of shaming around a lot of women who want to be part-time or full-time parents. But I would say that men, fathers also experience that too. And I would say, I'd say the vast majority of women and the majority of men, to a lesser extent, 
want to be parent like part-time parents part-time workers and the polling sort of shows that that the biggest in terms of the group of people who are not getting what they want it's not stay-at-home mums stay-at-homes more or less get what they want in terms of how many what percentage of women want to be stay-at-homes and what percentage of the society actually get that that's very similar but the biggest difference is in uh full-time working dads something like i think like one in four dads wants to be a part-time parent and yet about 80 percent of dads are working full-time and get spend very little time with their children so i'm i'm all for the value of motherhood but so too am i for the value of fatherhood and i, I would like to allow fathers to be part-time parents uh, just as much as mothers if they choose to and if they choose to not do that and that's that's fine as well I, I i respect that part of autonomy but i i wouldn't want to forget how important fathers are in families especially in boys especially within the, the context of what what society experiences in terms of like gang violence knife crime homelessness male suicide you mentioned all of these are positively benefited from the, the presence of more fathers at homes so I wouldn't want. I also wouldn't want to go back to a society where the women stay at home and the dads go to work. Because I just feel like that doesn't does is not to the benefit of children uh, or the family unit. Well, yeah, that was the that's a sort of aberration of the post-industrial working model. This is a critique of the sort of trad wife movement, where they turn around and say, "Well, the 1950s white picket fence America was propped up by the post-war economic order. It was a very short space of time, and actually, lots of the housewives were bored out of their mind just." staying at home and cleaning bits and pieces all day while the dad is very distant from his family working in an office job and so of course if the family unit isn't present and cohesive it's more mm. liable to being broken apart over time whereas actually before factory work and office work and now the knowledge economy dads would work close to home they train up their sons in a profession you get mentorship and vocation and you'd get a much more cohesive watched over and protected mm. family unit and I, I totally agree that well, hopefully with transformations in tech, we might be able to go back to that for more families than, than currently the, the highest income bracket facilitates. So, so we, may as well, we may as well dive into your personal pet issues then because you've been great on consolidating the data for this. What are those key issues that, that men and boys are facing at the moment? What aren't being talked about? Well, I suppose the big ones are life expectancy, for example. If you're a man you can expect to live a shorter life than a woman in every single country in the world. So men have lower life expectancy than women in all developed and developing countries. Uh, so it's like a universal observation. And then obviously men have a higher mortality rates in every single age group than women. In America, they lead in nine of the top 10 causes of death. So when it comes to dying, men are really good at that, unfortunately. Um, similarly, similarly, ubiquitous problem with um, education, for example. Um, we often use women being excluded from education as a sign of their systemic disadvantage, which is has some truth to it, but not entirely. But boys now are behind in education in every single level, in more or less every single Western country, and very little has been done for it. In fact, done about it. In fact, girl, women and girls are um, further ahead now in education than, than men and boys were 50 years ago. So it's, it's, it's sort of flipped. And then some. So boys are now further behind. So behind at every stage of education, more likely to die pretty much in every single cause of death, more likely to die in every single country in the world. Um, and then obviously you've got the, the, I mean, not, not small issues, but the smaller issues of like homelessness, drug addiction, suicide, incarceration, police homicides, 
uh, violent crime, homicide. They're all men are all dominating all of these fields. But those aren't the fields of male domination that we seem willing to talk about. Um, they're underrepresented in many, many groups. They often don't have rights in many things that women do have rights in, such as uh, parental rights. And um, things like in America, obviously you're going to have to sign drafts. So every single man in America has to sign away his body to the military at 18. Women don't have to do that. Uh, very controversial, particularly on the right, talking about circumcision. But I've also I've mm. got a big problem with circumcision. Just like any sort of um, surgical procedure on an unconsenting child, like the right seemed very willing to talk about that within the trans discussion, which is fair enough. But no one on the right seems to be wanting to talk about male circumcision on infants. And I'm like, those are the same things. Like, yeah, absolutely, one hundred percent. Ideological surgery on unconsenting children—you've got to be against all of them. So there's that, and that's obviously we're talking millions of boys, over a billion worldwide. And then uh, just even more controversial still, we're talking about domestic violence and how, how much data there is that shows that it's not a gendered issue and women are equally violent in relationships as men are, but less likely to cause significant injury to a male partner, but only because of their lack of, lack of physical strength in comparison to a man. And then obviously sexual violence is pretty, pretty even more controversial. And um, even in the country, in terms of sexual violence, even in the country where we live, Connor, it's legally impossible for a woman to even rape a man. So a lot of people I talk on to on the left are campaigning for things like marital rape to be criminalized in India, which is, again, fair enough. But they don't realize that in our own country, a woman can't even rape a man by law. So that's pretty horrific. And obviously, because they can't got seen as rape victims, they're not included in the data. So that is just a little bit. There's plenty more, there's plenty more to come from. And we, obviously, there's more intersectional issues. Um, it's very much bigger than what we pretend it is. So as a society, especially on the left, we seem to think that men and boys issues are something related to like not talking enough, not crying and not being able to wear a dress. And I'm like, fine, but there are bigger systemic issues that are disadvantaging boys. And only a few of them I've mentioned, but there's, there's plenty more you'll find on my page. Hmm. So, so it's worth taking some of those one by one then. Yeah, we'll, we'll go in. We'll go in the rank order of least controversial to most, I suppose. Mm. The the education and, and workplace disparate outcomes. Obviously, we'll, a lot of these we'll have to disentangle the systemic from the from the biological, because as mm. you said before, it makes perfect Absolutely. sense that that men take some of the most dangerous jobs. I think there was mm. a Forbes piece a few years ago that said men are eight to ten times more likely to die at work than than women. They oh, make up the more than that number. More. Um, like we're talking like ninety four percent of. Workplace deaths in America are men, and that's like four and a half thousand men, or five thousand men maybe. Worldwide, worldwide, even more shocking. Just in fishing, a hundred thousand dead men every year. A hundred thousand men die in the fishing industry worldwide, which is just unbelievably high. But in America, it's about four and a half thousand to five thousand uh, men every year dying at work, which is more men than the, all of the military deaths from the entire twenty-year Iraq War. So. More men die every year at work in America than all of the military deaths from 20 years of being at war, the war against terror. And again, like no one, no one's talked about that. But yeah, it's, it's even worse than what you said. It's about, about 20 to 1. I mean, I'd, again, just to express my frustration at the ubiquity of misandry. Mm. These are the men that are quite literally keeping the lights on and the infrastructure running. Yeah. You know, I, yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's not like they don't find these jobs deeply meaningful, both to provide for their family, sure. But before I, I mm. did all, all this comfy 
sitting behind a camera stuff. I was working with my granddad who, from age 15 to age 72, he was a, he was a builder, a bricklayer. You know, we were digging gardens, laying patios, putting up fences. It's hard work. You feel terrible mm. by the end of your shift. But it's really rewarding to manifest something in front of you. Mm. It, it, if you're exerting yourself to the maximum effort, it feels like you're proving yourself to yourself yeah. every day that you get up in, in front of a mirror, right? And so you can yeah. only imagine that these guys have got that kind of mentality of, it's a hard job, but I'm doing it, and it's worthwhile that I'm doing it. And then to be culturally mm. disparaged when they're literally mm. putting their lives on the line to just make things run. So some Jezebel blogger, before they all got fired, <laughs> whoopee, yeah. can just sit behind her desk and whine <laughs> about how everything is so luxurious and why isn't the AC tuned to my, to my personal body temperature? I'd just like do one there's not really yeah, a question yeah. there but really no gratitude whatsoever mm. yeah well now I'll, I'll start this um, response by taking gratitude for what I have and quite clearly I, I, I live a comfortable life as do you seemingly I mean look, <laughs> looking at you right now it looks very pleasant so I'm happy to acknowledge any sort of privilege I'm expected to but it's obviously more complicated than that and there are men that have horrible living standards and like bricklaying is extraordinarily hard and, and thankless task and like you said like you're quite literally building houses for people and like a, a few things that should be more rewarding than that and men's role of which bricklaying is just one is so hugely important society that i often think maybe men should just go on strike but people would just die like 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 you said like the food in your fridge the electricity the yeah. water that the waste the bin men and stuff like that they're all it's all men like mostly men so I don't understand when people say we don't need men or men aren't important. I'm like, you are just so naive to your own privilege that just being born today is a massive privilege. To be born today in, in the developed world is a huge benefit for everyone, male or female. And like anyone that doesn't accept that is just so ignorant. Like it's not, it's not really worth talking to them, I find. Yeah, a lysistrata for shovels would really bring all of civilization to, yeah. to a grinding halt. Um, yeah, that, yeah. So what, what's behind a lot of the education stuff? Because I saw that, I can't remember the exact amount, but that boys were exponentially more likely to drop out during COVID lockdowns from university than their female counterparts. And I believe that the Department for Education published in 2021 that white British boys in particular were the second mm. least well-performing mm. group in the school system behind Irish and, and Roman travellers who live a kind of nomadic life and don't value education culturally anyway. So what's, what's causing some of that? What stats do you have for that? Well, boys are disadvantaged in education, not just white boys. The white boys are very much at the bottom. White working class boys, should be said. Um, I'd say white working class boys have additional disadvantage because we don't see them as able to experience disadvantage. There was a famous case recently where uh, someone in their will left about a million pounds um, scholarship to, specifically for white boys to get back into education and it was eventually it got so much um, controversy around it because of white boys that they actually cancelled the scholarship uh, and yet people like Stormzy routinely and even very recently to that particular story they give scholarships to black boys all the time which is excellent but white boys are just as disadvantaged in education as black boys working class boys um, to the point where we talked a lot about when the latest results came out this year about how far behind working class students are from middle class students, uh, the class gap in education. But what people don't realize is that soon the gap between girls and boys is going to be even bigger than that. So you'll be more disadvantaged to be a boy than you are to be poor in the UK in terms of education. And there's, I mean, there's loads of reasons why boys are behind 
but very little clarity on which one is most suitable as a theory because no one's asking no one's really trying to find out there's very there's so little political will to actually understand what's going on to boys or we have our hypothesis and i can give you some of those so like a lot of it say that because classrooms are so dominated by women that 80 percent teachers are women they they have a inherent or an unintentional bias towards girls so girls get better grades for the same work and uh, boys are punished more harshly for the same behavior so punished more harshly and graded lower than teachers and it's interesting because the covid um lockdown obviously um was a very interesting study of that because exams were cancelled and a lot of results are based on teacher assessments instead of exams and that's where girls went even further ahead so girls are already ahead but when it went down to just teacher assessments they went even further ahead which um, suggests a systemic bias against boys in education and the word systemic bias that isn't they're not my words they're the words of the former ceo of ucas herself uh, mary kernick cook who's an excellent example for boys in education uh, as an advocate and um so we have sort of uh teacher bias we have um boys are more sort of uh, benefit benefit more from vocational learning as you mentioned so long periods of sitting quietly reading and writing is just not as suitable for boys as it is for girls i would say it isn't great for girls either but anyone that knows a boy is a very rambunctious and they're sort of flooded testosterone and you want to get up and you want to move around i was one of those boys in school so we need like literally bigger classrooms more physical space more spatial learning there's arguments that boys have a slightly delayed um development like uh mentally than girls like maturity wise and that's partly biological so people argue that boys should start education a year later than girls that closes by the way that closes later in life so it's not like it sort of sustains um in a, in a very obvious way there's lots and lots of scholarships for women and girls in education very few for boys and men um and yeah i just think the whole educational system which is more and more based on teacher assessments doesn't help boys and it's also based on like i said sitting reading learning quietly and uh boys are failing education they've been failing for 30 years my entire life they failed they've been further and further behind girls since like the late 80s and no one seems to be willing to do anything about it That's yeah I, I, I think part of that as well is the approach to policing male behavior mm. so i experienced this quite a lot at school as well and i don't know if this is strangely personal for the viewers but we'll roll with it my my primary school in particular encouraged young boys about five to eleven to sit in long sustained periods mm. of silence if you broke said silence you would be sent to sit on your own which i was mm. constantly and then in the playground if there was any kind of rough and tumble play because they continually banned bulldog and mm. red rover and even it at points because people were slapping each other because you're running around and you're a child they put you on something called the hot spot so they painted little spots on bits of paving underneath the classroom windows faced the playground and the field so you had to watch all of your peers play and you had to stand in silence it was like a like a maoist torture technique and if a kid comes up to you they could talk to you but if you talk back to them you got it for the next day and so yeah. it's is, it is drilling into you that you have to be sedentary compliant entirely silent attentive even if it doesn't interest you and you have very limited outlets for physical aggression mm. and energy and they wonder mm. why the excess diagnosis of adhd for so many young boys is coming in mm. to the point now where even like newspapers like the sun and the fda are turning around and going oh 
the erectile dysfunction epidemic that suddenly every conservative podcaster is selling pills to try and correct might have been caused by Ritalin Adderall. Maybe, maybe that's our bad, lads. We might be actually making you impotent from childhood all the way through adolescence just to keep you controlled so some woman at the front of the class doesn't get a headache behaviourally wrangling you. I know I'm just sharing my exasperation. No, yeah, you're right. I mean, I have similar. I got. I was a naughty boy. I didn't think I was a naughty boy. I just think I was bored. I think a lot of a lot of boys are called naughty, but when in fact they're just disengaged by a educational style that is just not suitable for them, and they're sort of told they're stupid. They get the exam results that sort of confirm that, and then like I was sat down at the end of my bed pretty much every single year and told that I'm not trying hard enough, mm. and at no point did my parents consider maybe it was school that wasn't trying hard enough or wasn't educating me in a way that was most suitable to my way of learning which is very similar to a lot of boys but, um i sympathize with you and yeah i i got locked in a store cupboard by my english teacher and i was misbehaving and i was just like um but we are we are failing boys and we are medicating boys like boys that are showing normal rambunctious behavior uh and we're just sort of yeah like you say medicating them and they're just being boys and um kind of sort of compound that with the wider narrative around boyhood and masculinity which is almost always negative pathologizing masculinity as something that's toxic or patriarchal that's needs to be fixed like 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 boys and men are dysfunctional women which which they are not um and then you got to add into that the, the lack of fathers and how that compounds with the lack of male teachers and then in the media boys are not being given exposed to the same amount of positive male role models as lot of girls are and all of it just really does not help boys and then none of it's acknowledged it's all wrapped up in a sort of self-blaming thing where boys are just told they need to work harder at school which is outrageous uh but totally unsurprising the whole narrative around men and boys issues is that it's something that only they can fix and they need to work harder or try harder or be less toxic or talk more or cry a little bit and not and there's very little accountability accepted by anyone else in this instance in this instance the educational system yeah, Nick Fletcher was excoriated, I think mm. about two years ago now, for turning around and saying, well, all of boys' male role models have either been emasculated or diverse recast with women, for bit Doctor Who, James Bond, etc. And people were saying, mm. oh, well, well, you're just, you're just being silly. You're really saying that boys are being disparaged because they don't have a male Doctor Who. Well, sorry, yeah. I've just heard representation matters for the last 20 years. Mm. So would you maybe like to address that issue? And speaking of being made present, I'm glad you raised the fatherlessness issue because it... It seems to be something that's ubiquitous, not just from conservative critiques of the mm. American black community for how many mm. years, for example, mm. where fatherlessness rates are tragically high since mm. heavy-handed welfare reforms. But now, I think it was the Children's Commissioner, Rachel D'Souza, she turned around and said, it might have been last year, that upwards of 50% of homes in the UK now, across all demographics and ethnicities, are seeing, on average, their dad not be present. So either their children are living between two households uh, because the parents cohabitated and separated or because of divorce. And mm. it just seems to be an unwillingness to believe that this has any kind of impact on the child's development because, and we heard this at ARC, you don't want to stigmatise single mothers. There's always the prefaces, and single mothers are great, they're, they're, they're some of the hardest working people in the world, and I'm not saying they're any, they're, they can't be as good as, well actually, yeah, it's kind of difficult to be as good as two parents. Should no, be a surprise. Yeah. Of course. And like you just like anyone benefits from two pairs of hands. Like a child has more stability, more financial sort of uh, income in the family. There's more people to go to and speak with. There's more more sort of individuals to role model oneself on. 
it's just better and like if one if one of the parents is not feeling great or is suffering in a certain way the other parent can come in it's just two sets of hands are obviously better than one and this is a great way of again expect i know we talk about the left failing boys in a very abstract way and it does sound like i'm some pointing the finger like some sort of boogeyman but there are there are leftist labor mps such as harriet Harman, who i'm happy to name like there's a name to the the villain of fatherhood and that one of those names is harriet Harman. and the stuff she said about fathers especially in the late 80s early 90s horrific horrible horrible things like saying that they're not necessary for a cohesive family life and they shouldn't be seen as a means of sort of harmony in a family and from that came the children act which stripped rights from fathers completely and now we're paying the price of fathers not having rights now we're seeing like the violent crime and the fatherless epi- epidemic and now people like Harry Harmon are complaining about that and I'm like you created that problem by taking by stripping fathers of value and of rights and now we're paying the consequences and now you're blaming men again rather than like, just take some accountability for yourself Harriet and uh, again that she wrote that black and white in the family way and it was um, obviously the family family way which is a political paper which she also wrote with um, Patricia Hewitt and Anna Coote and it was that which petitioned the government to um, strip barbers of rights a year later in the in the Children Act. So I want to talk about how the left have failed men and boys in a very literal way, giving you names and actual facts rather than just talking about the left as some sort of abstract term. But left-wing politicians have done horrific things to men and boys, especially fathers. And it's about time they took accountability and hopefully retract what they say because the value of fatherhood is quite literally on the streets outside. It's splashed across headlines in the most tragic way possible, especially in London with that knife crime. Yeah, Harriet Holman's, Harriet Holman's track record on allying with groups that don't have children's best interests at heart aren't exactly uh, great. Uh, David Lammy as well, great, great frustration because how many years ago, and I don't think he's the, the brightest tool in the box, but he was at least being honest about the knife crime epidemic being caused mm. by a lack of fathers present mm. at home. So he gave an interview for the BBC about this, and then now he's turned about face and just blamed it all abstractly on systemic racism because it's been popular to take the knee. And, and, mm. and Jess Phillips, I mean, it's not exactly the most popular oh name around this office, but when she turned around <laughs> and, and, and laughed at Philip, I believe it was Philip Davies, who turned around yeah. and said, oh, well, there, we, we need to look into the male suicide epidemic. And she said, mm. oh, we'll, we'll get that when I get my 50-50 part. Yeah. It's just a clear... Yeah capricious grab for power along Just ideological narcissist. lines. But she, like he said it perfectly. She said, there's plenty of opportunity for men to raise issues in parliament, which there is. But Philip said, there's a difference between men raising issues and the raising of men's issues. And so many of the issues taken education, for example, are not raised in parliament. And she, she's so either deliberately manipulative or just stupid, Jess Phillips. That and just is sort of contained within this narcissism where she looks around the room and she's like, until I get equality around this table, we are not going to have that discussion. And I'm like, how about the people outside of this room? How about the people that are not you, Jess? And yeah, you're quite right. Philip Schofield had a had a speech. Philip Davies, not Schofield. <laughs> Sorry, Philip Davies. I get this too mixed up. Philip Davies uh, talked about needing um, a talk on International Men's Day about men and boys issues, and she just laughed, just laughed about it. And that was on the Equalities Committee. And uh, there's loads of reasons, not like Jess Phillips. Um, and that's just one of them. And she's just a very immature woman and very thin-skinned, in my opinion. And yet again, she's, she dresses it up as that. She's some sort of warrior, but she's, I, don't, I think she's incredibly brittle. And uh, mm-hmm. just another name. And there's plenty more on the, late, on the Labour Party that have failed men and boys. And I, I mean, I've, I've only ever voted Labour my entire life. 
I only recently left the party and it's embarrassing. I find it really, really embarrassing. And I'm, I'm applauding the Conservatives who are doing better, but not great, but definitely better. Philip Davies and Neil as well. Excellent. Two excellent guys that are doing the hard work and are getting like just pulled apart as a result. Mm, yeah, well, we're, we're currently at the time of recording going through a cabinet reshuffle, so I don't think uh, yeah. Nick and Philip are going to get much much more traction considering the appointments they've made. But but on, on, on the point about fathers losing their parental rights, this is something that comes mm. up in our comment section quite a lot. And whether or not it's men who are actually married and have been divorced and had the custody of their children taken away from them, or they're men who have not been married and are very averse to being married because of the family court system, there mm. is a deep resentment, and I don't want to dismiss it, I don't think it's helpful, but I don't want to jettison it, that whenever on our podcast we bring up the values of having cohesive family units, sticking mm. with the institution of marriage as was once practiced, Carl talks about his philosophy of dadism, there will be guys saying, well this is a, a rigged game, it's a government contract that cuts against men, and if I pick the wrong woman I'm screwed for life. So what kind of issues are these guys facing? and what reforms would be necessary to make marriage a worthwhile institution for the guys that are a bit more risk averse? I have this amazing idea, it's called equality. And I feel like all of the rights that mothers have, fathers should have those too. Starting with parental rights, but also including parental leave, which fathers do not get equal parental leave or equal rights to their children. And I understand the cynicism around marriage from a lot of men, but I promise you, if you are gonna have a child, the best hope you've got of keeping that child in the divorce is if you're married. Like a single father, you are not in a good place. Like the only way you can get rights to your children in the UK as a father is by being married. An unmarried father does not get them unless they're named on a birth certificate, of which both those things are at the discretion of the mother. So I understand skepticism around marriage, but I'd say you're still better off being married, even though it's not perfect by any means. Um, to be like it's basically in the UK the way it works by law is that a father has to either be married or named on a birth certificate to have equal rights to their child. A mother gets equal and full rights as they should if they're married, divorced, separated, or single. And I would say we just need to make that the same on both. Um, and then obviously same parental leave. So I would say fathers should get the same parental leave as mothers. Uh, arguably, mothers should have a bit more because of the the actual physical trauma of going through birth needs additional time to recover from. But in terms of actual parental leave, I would say fathers should certainly have born two weeks uh, and hopefully a lot closer to the one year that mothers get. Well, in America, they get absolutely nothing. Again, it's, Yeah, which is horrific. None of... This comes back to a sort of latent strain throughout this conversation of none of the economy is designed in a way which actually values healthy families, which is the foundation of a civilization. It's uh, an ultimately suicidal principle for expedient, very neoliberal, we can chart this on a graph, growth, when you can't actually make real growth because productivity is stagnating, belief in, in the country and social mobility is stagnating. And so it's, it, it's just fudging the numbers, really, at the expense of, of children who need their families present. So mm. what, what about criminal justice? Because you've, you spoke to Chris quite a bit about this. Don't men yeah. get longer sentences for the same yeah. crimes? Yeah, especially black men. Um, there's two studies I've read. The first is American by Sandra Starr. And she found that, um, so it's not only in family courts where fathers get a bad, bad gig. It's also in criminal courts, as you said. So uh, a man going to court for the same crime, same criminal record, 
as a as a woman, she is twice likely to avoid a prison sentence, and he is going to get a sentence that's about sixty three percent longer than hers for for the same crime, same criminal record, and then that's compounded because uh, black Americans get ten percent longer sentences than white Americans. So it doesn't quite it's quite crudely done, but you'd say sixty three percent additional for a man plus ten percent on top of that if you're a black man, and uh, so it's a compounding effect in the UK. Ministry of Justice did their own report and they found that a man, I think it's 88% more likely to be imprisoned. Again, same criminal record, same criminal history, same crime, 88% more likely to go to prison. And so it's a systemic issue. Again, people don't like to put the word systemic disadvantage against men, but it's hard to think of a better example than a man and a woman going into a courtroom, having committed the same crime, having the same criminal record, and a man getting a longer sentence. That is a systemically sexist situation and so yeah you're right not to just the disadvantage of men in courtrooms does not just exist in family courts but criminal ones too and that's a really great example it's well documented it's well understood uh, even by the ministry of justice themselves and no one seems to want to do anything by it but obviously there's a lot of talk around uh, racial sentencing bias and quite rightly but like i said the, the numbers i said are um the the sentencing bias against american men is six times larger than the sentencing bias that black Americans receive. And yet no one ever talks about uh, the experiences of men in courtrooms. I think, I think as well, on the, on the flip side of this, the way that bureaucracy has displaced the strength of manhood in public life is manifested in our frankly suicidal, very woolly approach to criminal justice reform of where mm. not only do we lump all types of criminals in the same box a lot of the time, mm. which incentivizes them to swap trades, stay in the criminal system and maybe escalate mm. the rate at which they're, and, and, and the types of crimes that they're committing. But also it, the latest Department of Justice stats, I think it was for 2021, they said that if you have upwards of 11 offenses, you're 63% more likely to re-offend. And so we've mm. got these perpetual re-offenders in, in the system. And I think what the justice system does is by doing closed doors parole hearings, by doing more lenient sentencing for violent crimes as, as trends continue, and also punishing men for trying to protect their families by stripping their self-defense rights away from them, particularly in England, what you've got is a, a behavioral management state, a bit like a school teacher, and you're letting some of the more provable violent criminals off lighter while disempowering men and feeling that they can't protect their own communities. I, I, I think it's just sort of mad and frustrating that we're pushing some men in the system away from rehabilitation more towards violent crime, and the violent mm. offenders, we're treating them with kid gloves as if some men can actually be reprogrammed and just convinced that you cannot be a violent offender. When It's the sort of teach men not to rape mentality the Labour Party are taking with their, with their new sex education thing. And it's like, no, yeah. unfortunately, some, some men can't be taught not to rape. It's just that you've got to scare the rapists into mm. not raping. But you need strong mm. men to be able to do that. Yeah, well, I'd say, like, if you're talking about men who are incarcerated, you're trying to solve the problem when it's far too late. That's, like, that's too late now. Like, we should have intervened a long time ago in the ways we described in terms of, like, greater sense of fatherlessness, greater sense of fatherhood in homes, and and more community spirit around boys and more like more I'd say more male and boy spaces to help keep boys out of gangs because a lot of gangs obviously target boys who don't have fatherhood who haven't got a sense of family and the solution to that is giving that back to back to boys um, 
So the ways he described solving the criminal problem is too late at that point. But I would, yeah, I'd agree. Like I, I, I am an advocate of legalizing drugs. I don't think anyone should be in prison for dealing drugs unless it's an extreme case. Uh, violent criminals, of course, they should be in there for the protection of wider society. But in general, I'm a big fan of rehabilitation, not punishment. I'm a big fan of the Nordic model of criminal reform. I like, I love, I love country, um, companies like Timpsons in the UK. So unless you're British, you may not know, but Timpsons is like a very um, old working class style key cutters. They repair shoes and they cut keys. And they have a massive camp, massive program within Timpsons where a huge portion of their employees are former criminals. And um, the recidivism rate of their employees is absolutely tiny, like tiny, 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 less likely to commit a crime than a member of the general public. So I would say giving criminals an opportunity, a second chance is uh, certainly something worth considering. Um, and just not treating it entirely as a criminal issue, especially around drugs. And treating them as a health issue, uh, and and something needing a rehabilitation. Yeah. Well, I did know a I did know a guy that went to my secondary school, who's he was on a football scholarship. He was going to go to I think it was University of Los Angeles. Mm. Very very talented football soccer player for a, for American viewers, and he got decent A level grades. And in the summer between flying out to the states and completing his exams, his dad died, and him and his brother started dealing drugs to. Mm keep paying the rent got busted like an idiot that's it life life mm. thrown away so there, there needs to be again presence of fatherlessness as a result um obviously through no fault of his own but there also needs to be some kind of rehabilitation pathway for the kinds of people who can come back obviously there's a category mm. of criminal that are just so reprehensible you either lock them in a box or or um follow the british public's opinion on on the death penalty for that one but there are certainly a category of boys whose civilization has failed, who have fallen into mm. criminal careers, and who might be able to be to be helped. And there's something that that you've spoken about quite a bit in some of your posts, which is kind of a touchy issue, I suppose. Not an issue that many people want to tackle, but it feels like there's an iceberg effect lurking beneath that category of boys of of abuse, um, particularly like domestic violence, childhood sexual abuse, things like that. Mm. And it's just an issue that no one wants to touch upon. It's, it's something that no one's yeah about. yeah no no i mean for sure like um so in terms of domestic violence obviously we're, we're taught that there's only one cause of domestic violence and that is the patriarchy uh, and it's men doing it to women which is not true the, the the most prevalent and under-discussed cause of domestic violence and again that's to quote professor murray strauss the late murray strauss who was the founder of the field of family violence himself and is probably the most respected research in domestic violence that's ever lived the most prevalent cause of domestic violence and least discussed cause of domestic violence, according to him, was um, spanking children in adolescence. Mm. So that's where a child, through being exposed to violence from a parent, is taught that he, can, he or she can use violence as a means of correcting misbehavior later in life. And if you look at what spanking children is, which is using physical violence to correct perceived misbehavior, that is exactly what domestic violence is. Like you're using violence to correct the, mis the so-called misbehavior of your partner and and somehow one of them is abhorrent which it is but then somehow uh, uh, still in the uk in england at least it is legal to hit your child and that was only recently announced and it's about time we made that illegal and i'd encourage anyone um listening never never spank a child not only because it doesn't actually work in terms of correcting the misbehavior long term but it also vastly increases the chance of that child then 
uh, repeating that cycle of behavior in their own uh, interpersonal relationships later in life. Oh, that's so just one. That's just that. one cause. Yeah, I don't understand how that. That's just another bit of hypocrisy. Uh, I just do not understand how people can ever defend child. It's outrageous. Yeah, the um, the this is this is something that has come under the rubric of sort of peaceful parenting techniques. But then the idea that okay, we know so much about developmental psychology that we say that if you don't have a father in the home, how do you have a stable conflict resolution model? How do you know how to be a man? Mm. But then the same people that will say that. And this is a fault of people on my side, certainly, who are focused on discipline and order, will then say, spare mm. the rod, spoil the child. It's like, okay, do you not, do you not think mm. that this engenders a maladaptive conflict resolution model in kids if they're mm. learning that you need to hit things to get your way? Mm. Yeah, no, well, again, Murray Strauss, and he literally published papers, and the title was Never Hit Your Child Ever Under Any Circumstance. That was the title of his paper. So you can see how strongly he felt about it. And he said that if you raise... If you use violence to teach a child lessons, the result will be an adult who uses violence to teach lessons. If you use conversation and understanding to help your child learn, then the, the result will be an adult who uses conversation and listening to solve problems. And I feel like we all want option B, not if, if, if only for ourselves. And then, of course, like it's just worth reminding people that spanking children doesn't even work in, in the ends in which it's intended. It doesn't actually lead to a more be better behaved child at all, um, certainly not long term. Yeah, there's a CDC adverse childhood experience study. I think it's the Kaiser study. It's one of the largest cohorts of adverse childhood experiences examined. And that's everything mm. from neglect to physical abuse to verbal abuse. And if you have a score of four or more out of ten, you're exponentially mm. more likely to be addicted to drugs, to be a single parent, to mm. be incarcerated, to be promiscuous. Just all of these adverse life-affecting behaviors are influenced yeah. by threatening behaviors by the parent not least of all physical so mm. it's just it's like like you said with the circumcision issue it's just one of these undercurrents that goes unaddressed that if we were to decide to parent our children better and actually start having some you know among our generation then <laughs> it, i think things would be a hell of a lot healthier like how many people are carrying around that that baggage how many interactions does it affect every single day yeah i, I fundamentally believe that the vast majority of people are not born bad. Obviously, you have a small minority of like psychopaths, but I'd say the average person is a good person and they have bad experiences in life. Um, I remember I speak to a child psychologist on my page and she's taught me a lot about this. And she was saying there is no abnormal behavior in terms of like criminal behavior or otherwise. There's no abnormal behavior. There's just a normal response to an abnormal set of experiences. And when you think about it like that, it's very, it's very illuminating in the sense that no one's born bad. They have a, a normal response to an abnormal set of experiences. And by abnormal set of experiences, we're talking about ACEs. So experiences of childhood abuse and bullying and neglect. And I feel like that reframing is a very effective way of finding more compassion for the people that we seem to hate. Um, and yeah, ACEs. I mean, when I did a, I did a post on the uh, adverse childhood experiences in the prison system and I tell you what it was like the most easy to design pie chart I've ever done it was just like that it was just like 100% pretty much have like four or more aces I think it was like 98% 99% of the prison population have four or more aces and uh, it's just incredible impossible to ignore a bit of data that where uh, hurt people hurt people like if you've been hurt you're more likely to hurt someone else and yet there's no there's little effort to break that cycle of violence 
but you just seem to be obsessed with blaming and condemning people, especially men and especially black men, which the no, left what? is doing as well. As well, like I don't understand how they don't see that. Like they blame men, we create a cultural fear around men, and I'm like, well, who is going to pay the biggest price for that? The answer is black men, and I'm like, the very the very systemic idea around police violence is perpetuated in part by the left by saying that men are inherently violent, inherently dangerous, something to be afraid of. And I'm like, black men are going to pay the price for that one. And I'm like, you're literally creating the very problem you claim to want to solve. And uh, yeah, I mean, this is one more example of hypocrisy. Yeah, okay. So I do, I do want to pick up on that specific thing because you mentioned the word intersectional there before. And I think this is where our worldviews might run into discordance. There might be, I, mm. I think I see some pitfalls in that, in that heuristic, mm -hmm. but I do think it's, accept, it's a useful way of talking to the left camp that you're trying to convince to care about men. And mm. obviously, whereas a certain amount of political temperament is shaped by, it's, it's heritable. Uh, when you said leftism is, is in your bones in some way, I mean, that's it's kind of true for quite a few people. So you've still got, to, still got to meet people where they are. But I did want to come back to the, unfortunately, it's a difficult topic, but the, the sexual and domestic violence stuff. Do you know what likelihood men making domestic violence and sexual violence claims are to have their cases listened to? Do you know that if many women get sentenced for violence against their partner? Because we hear a lot about intimate partner violence, particularly since Sarah Everard case. Mm. Well, I mean, Sarah Everard, I always annoyed me about Sarah Everard because, well, it didn't annoy me, but it frustrated me because that was used as a, a sort of um, an image of violence against women when in fact it's a very extreme form of violence against women. And um, it's worth remembering, although these, these are highly shocking, tragic instances, they, they take up a disproportionate amount of media attention and they're not happening every single day. I also want, I don't want to sound like I'm waving away as not being a problem but I just want to place it within the, the proportionality of the problem itself. Uh, domestic violence is nothing like that. And people, people confuse those two graphs. They say 80% or 90% of uh, violent crimes in the street are by men, and they are. Um, they seem to think that also means that 90% of domestic violence is by men, and that isn't true. They, seem to, they conflate the two things, and I'm like, just, they're not the same. They're very different issues. The, the motivations are very different, and women actually perpetuate violence. 50% uh, of domestic violent relationships is the woman that's being violent. And in fact, most domestic violence relationships are bilaterally violent. So both partners doing it. Uh, so very, and that's when I say like, perhaps intersection is the wrong word, but I just want to put an additional lens in front of the way we've used prob view problems. So through, we see domestic violence through one single lens, and that is, it's the patriarchy. It's men enacting patriarchal control onto women and it's men doing it to women. And if women is violent, it's, it's self-defense. And it's a very low resolution view. Whereas when I talk about intersectionality, I'm talking about, well, we need to put another lens in front of that. We need to understand the impact of like poverty or education or child, like spanking childhood, um, drug addiction, alcohol abuse, like very additional lenses to put in front and class, especially um, to view these problems in a, in a more high resolution, grown up way, ideally free of political ideology and based more on facts. So like, um, like, like how, how you're meant to do a proper scientific study and where you do a multi-factor analysis, you consider the biases that are going mm. into it to the extent that you can eradicate them. Because mm. I think a lot of people's ears prick up, and I know I want to talk about ears, 
When people say intersectionality, <laughs> people are concerned that you mean the style Kimberly Crenshaw mapping the margins instrument of dividing people up into grievance classes so that they can attack the existing order and topple it over style thing. I think that's what that's what gets people's alarm bells running. Yeah. When actually, you mean introducing nuance and depth into the conversation and tackling more the, more issues than just it's the patriarchy and all men to blame. Well, I guess going to like a very recent example, we talked about police brutality. And that was talked about as a racial issue, which it is. But I, I try, I take an intersectional view. I say it's both racial and gender based because the vast majority of, of people killed by police are black men. And uh, men are killed about, by American police officers about 20 times as often as women. So I'd say that is an additional view I would like to take on top of the racial issue of, of, of BLM. That's what I mean, intersectional. I, I do understand people's reluctance about it and it's got a very bad image around it because one of the problems of intersectionality is that not only are you intersecting someone in but you're intersecting someone out so when feminism draws an intersection of black women i often find they're intersecting out black men and i'm like well the experience of black men are very much worth taking into consideration and um I, yeah i understand your concern about it but it's an effective way of communicating with the left and sometimes it's more important to be effective than it is to be right and I'd rather be effective and use language that not only they recognize, but language that hopefully will expose how hypocritical they are uh, in failing to use it for men. Uh, but it's important, like when we talk about education, for example, it's not good enough to say it's boys that are behind. You need to be saying working class boys. So that's what I mean. I'd say it's probably better a way of being it's a, like additional, le additional lenses we can add on to a problem to see the problem with higher resolution and a greater sense of detail. I think it's certainly worthwhile oh, yeah. you using that within your own camp as well, because there, there, lots of people are going to be deaf to voices like yeah. mine who are maybe more forthright. I think there's a constituency, and I've spoken to Doug Stokes and Rakib Hassan about this. Who um, Doug's a liberal somewhere in the centre, Rakib is blue mm. Labour type, and they like the term grievance industrial complex, of where there is the mm. NGO class, the type that ally with with Jess Phillips's misandry who only exist to use intersectionality to divide and conquer, and mm. who prey upon less switched on than you, well-meaning, left to centre liberal types concern for inequality, to mm. say, okay, we're going to marginalise this group and blame them for this, and we're going to use mm. this group as our kind of vanguard class for our preferred policies. Whereas if you're flipping that on its head and saying, actually, here's also what you're marginalising, and if you're considering equality in the abstract, then you should be attentive to men's issues too. That might be convincing mm. to the people that think that way. That's that's an interesting framing that I hadn't really considered. So that's that's useful. Um, hey man, if it if it brings if it brings more people to the sort of sensible third way manosphere stuff then I'm I'm happy with it. I'm a results based man, you know. Uh, yeah, no, I, I agree. It's like a, there are naming problems. Like people roll their eyes when you talk about intersectionality intersectionality. And I, I do understand why. Uh, I roll my eyes when I hear things like manosphere and all that. Mm -hmm. So that's my own personal problem. But I agree in general, like I, one thing I say most of all my page is like treat the issue, not the gender, mm. like see the issue itself. That's what we need to be solving. Don't treat the gender because then we just become very sort of enamored with oneself and we sort of repeat the cycle. We don't actually solve it. And um, yeah, I would say again, treat the issue, not the gender. Yeah. Chris um, quoted you with this amazing aphorism that I actually had to write down. When women have a problem, we say, what can we do to fix society? When men have a problem, we say, what can we do to, fi to make men fix themselves? 
That's yeah. It's absolutely the the approach that's taken currently. Well, I I can't remember what I read that. I'm sure I took that from someone else or changed it or built upon it. And it's very nice to see how one idea can be picked up and given to someone else, and then someone adds to it, and then I give it to Chris, and then he gives it back, and then it's just yeah. like it's an interesting view of the development of ideas. But the actual content of idea is saying that men men and boys issues we see that as uh, internalized problem or some sort of personal failing of that man or boy like the boy is not trying hard enough at school the man is not going to the doctor because he's toxic or he's not talking enough and it's very seen as individual failings whereas women their their issues are caused by systemic factors which is which is largely correct and um, i would just wish we would treat men and boys issues with the same understanding and compassion but we're very reluctant to um and yeah like you said like the man has an issue and we blame him. If a woman has an issue, we blame society. And it's not good enough. Like, I guess male suicide is an easy example to give because the vast majority, or the majority of, pe- of men who are suicidal don't consider themselves having some sort of mental problem. And the, bio- the biomedical model of suicidality is very much outdated now. We seem seem to think suicide is caused by some sort of chemical, chemical imbalance or toxic mindset that needs to be changed. And the vast majority of I should say the majority of men who are suicidal don't consider themselves being mentally unwell. They consider the problems they have to be very real structural problems, like like joblessness or debt or losing a child in uh, family courts or relationship problems or vic- being a victim of domestic violence. Like very big structural problems that are not internalized. And although like men talking and crying will help them, will probably help them deal with that problem. I don't think it will solve the problem itself. So. I would say we need to stop limiting men's problems to internalize issues and start to see them within the full breadth and detail they, they demand in the same way we see women and, women and girls' issues. Yeah, well, rather than provide them avenues, vocations to prove themselves to themselves like, like I was when I was bricklaying to make them feel better, mm-hmm. instead we dose them up either as a, a kid with Ritalin and, and Adderall if they have resulting sexual dysfunction issues either from SSRIs mm-hmm. or from those drugs. I think it's now like four million men in the UK, that one in ten now have used Viagra at some point in their life because of sexual impotency from porn or drugs. And then there was a recent report from the England and Wales coroner's office that found that in a large majority of overdose-based suicides, SSRIs were the Mm. drug themselves that were taken for the overdose. So clearly Mm. the medicalization approach isn't working, both for men and women that are heavily reliant on it. And I also really, really hate the framing in there where it's the Hillary Clinton thing of women are the first victims of war. It's like, sorry, yeah. why? <laughs> oh, because their husbands die. Oh, right. Okay. So, so men suffer, women most affected, right? Men, yeah, men yeah. doing badly means that women can't find suitable mates because they aren't earning mm. enough because of the earning gap between 18 and 30 mm. now between men and women. And actually it's the men that have got to perpetually step up rather than addressing the issues which yeah. systemically disadvantage them. It's almost like it's in women's interest yeah. for men to succeed, you know? Yeah, yeah. And she said that twice, by the way. She said it again recently in context of the Ukrainian war. And I'm just like, that is so stupid. We're all more stupid of you having said that. And I'm like, it's outrageous. Like, the number one victim of war are the ones dying in it, which is almost always men. And although being a woman whose husband's killed or injured is not easy either, it's, I'd rather be that than the one being killed. And I just, she always amazes me of how stupid she is. And the fact that she said it twice now really shows that she's not gotten any smarter. So it's interesting, yeah. I hate that view. So I hate the view of that we need to talk about men and boys because it's women and girls that are going to benefit. So it, is a, it is a real benefit. 
And like, no one wants to be in a relationship with uh, the men I described, but the primary benefactor is and should always be men and boys. And we, again, going back to male suicide, often we find the conversation of male suicide is gatekept by people that aren't even men. And like the, the conversation of male suicide has to be had by and returned to suicidal men and bereaved families. And they, they, they are eternal gatekeepers for male suicide, in my opinion. And just as I've learned to sit down and listen to women and girls discuss their issues, so too there was a seat next to me for women and girls to sit down and listen to men and boys talk about what is causing their suicidal pain and for us to take it seriously, not just to round it down or squish it into a little box that says more tears, more, more, more talk and, you know, all that sort of kindness, to actually listen and go through the uncomfortable work that a lot of men and boys have gone through to understand women and girls. So, yeah, yeah. no. I, I, yeah. I, think, I think there's also part of those issues. We've had this conversation before a couple of times in the office of in the modern day, it's actually kind of difficult to know when to call yourself a man because if 50% of women in the UK have no children, you can only assume that a, a large portion of men are also doing the same. And it's just harder mm. to get stats on that because you know, the mothers are the one giving birth. It, the majority living arrangement since 2016 in the States and the UK for men under 35 is living with their parents. You know, they can't mm. move out and establish themselves on the property ladder. As we've already said, they're making a lot less than their female counterparts until 30. And that's the, the pay gap is the motherhood gap, which is a consequence largely of choice and assertiveness. But as the, as the age at which men start their lives starts to elongate, then that eclipses the fertility window, again, driving men and women mm. away from each other. And so if you aren't a high earner, if you aren't the man of last resort that your wife and child are depending on you, if you aren't a dad, it creates a feeling of despondency and dispossession that I think a lot of men in our sort of age cohort are feeling. Like I'm thinking of a guy, really good friend of mine, uh, I won't name him, but he's in his late 20s, he's an assistant director at a really good firm, he just got a bonus for being like a model employee, so they gave him a substantial pay rise and a brand new iPhone, I mean, you know, it's materialistic qualms, <laughs> but it shows that he's competent. Uh, he's got his own little apartment there, he hasn't bought it, he's renting it, but he's saving up for a place and his family are more than capable of supporting him to, to put a down deposit for a house when he wants it. And he was with a girl for five years and it was getting up to engagement crunch time. And she said, you know what, I feel like I haven't had my 20s because of lockdown. I want to go and travel and I don't know if I'm ready to have kids yet. And so they mm. split. And now he has got this kind of sense of self of where he is waiting for life to give him the opportunities to prove to himself that he can be the man that he knows he wants to be because he's spinning wheels professionally and if he's very successful then who is a success for? What is he working for? What is he earning for? And I think there is that sort of intangible sense of a generation of purposeless men who mm. maybe aren't as, maybe haven't had abuse, maybe aren't likely to be incarcerated but you've just got mm. nothing and no one to call your own yet. Mm. I, I do worry yeah. there's going to be an explosion in resentment from that. Yeah, there's like a dearth of purpose. Purpose, And I, I just think of my, my friend uh, Susie, the male suicide researcher, she talks about mattering, which is a really nice term, like idea that the, the feeling of mattering to someone. And I feel like men um, feel more and more so that they don't matter. And they're being taught that they don't matter in quite literal terms sometimes. But, I suppose the solution is one of two things. It's either to re-establish the traditional male roles uh, and then there's also 
for men to find new sense of meaning outside of those those roles. So instead of valuing men primarily as a breadwinner and a provider, to find new strands of purpose and meaningfulness in men's lives, such 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 as fatherhood, or being a great friend, or sort of the same sort of interaction of hobbies that women women experience and benefit from. I'm very much of this of camp B, which is why I dislike people like Andrew Tate who want to confine men to a very uh, limited traditional uh, male mindset, which, regardless of what you think is right or wrong on a personal basis, is becoming less and less able to achieve because women are entering the workplace and it's good that they are but the role the idea of like a 1960s man who can provide for his family on his own as the breadwinner is just not as achievable and less and less so every year that goes on so i don't i don't even think tate's providing that this is this is the this is why i think a lot of the more traditional minded conservatives and i put myself in this camp break with tate because one he got rich off of selling men the instrument of their own misery which you know, yeah. if if you're if you're an eleven year old and you've seen hardcore pornography, that's it. You know, you're, you've, mm. you've got your you've got your adolescence written off by a predatory company that just wants to make money off you. And he was one of those guys. I'm not gonna. I'm really not gonna say that the paragon of masculinity is a guy who's admitted to pretending to be a girl and te- like dirty talking men to get them out of yeah. their money. I think yeah. you know, that's mental. But then also, I think he's maladaptive <laughs> to the same kind of paradigm the feminists say, where they say, well, men just aren't earning enough now that we're in the workforce, so men need to earn more. And he's promising, okay, mm. in order to get a harem full of women rather than one woman that you can love and raise children with, you need a fleet of Bugattis and a compound in Romania and to constantly dodge the authorities on allegations. And it's like, okay, how do you do that? Well, sign up to Hustlers University and you can promote Andrew Tate clips for a living. It's right, okay, to be Andrew Tate, you can't be because the only way to be Andrew Tate is to promote Andrew Tate. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so it, yeah. it seems to be an acceleration of the same paradigm that's stripping men of their purchasing power and the meaningful vocations and the fatherhood roles that they actually like. I, I prefer the idea, and I think, I don't, know if, I don't know if pay parental leave is the way to do this. I think it might be more supply side like Miriam's talking about, but the ability for men to stay home longer or be part-time fathers alongside their careers that you've proposed, because mm. that's, that's a very pre-modern way of doing it. That makes fathers more present. It's actually a lot more traditional-minded than a lot of the stuff that's sold to you on TikTok now. I think that's. I do think that's the way to go. Rather than the, we need to give new roles outside the gender binary for men. I think that's what some people were annoyed with Warren Farrell about Ark actually, because he said all these stats about men that you've been talking about, so eloquently. And he said we need to break the old gender ways to find new roles that fit men and women. It's like, well, what if what if we kind of liked some of the old ways? You know, we shouldn't shouldn't just get rid of all of it. Well, I mean, I guess it's you're free to fulfil whatever role as a man you choose uh as am i and it in that's it in its most simplest term i and i like warren farrell i i enjoyed most of his books i think that was the reason why he stopped being a feminist actually because he was um the only man in history ever to be elected to the national organization for women's board in new york three times so he was like the ultimate male feminist like probably the most male most famous male feminist in the world until he went into a board meeting once where the, the national organization for women were basically talking about not wanting to support shared custody between mothers and fathers. And he was like, how could we talk about equality and not want to give the same rights to fathers as we do to mothers? And then what happened was a huge falling out. And then Warren was ejected from the National Organization for Women and let stop being a feminist and set up the men's rights movement, I suppose. Um, but I don't, I mean, I just fundamentally feel like we should give every single individual as much opportunity to be or not be whatever they want. And if, you, if you'd if you prefer to exercise your value as a man through the ways you've described, 
then so be it. And I'm happy to support you in that. But the problem is when other people project that opinion onto someone else and tell them that's how you should get value from being a man. Because my, my, my sense of value as a man is probably different to yours. And that doesn't make it any less meaningful or valued. Um, but I'm glad we can agree that Andrew Tate is more or less just a very unhelpful person. And the new way, yeah, the ways he described are very relevant too. And he's a hypocrite. I mean, I don't think he thinks about anything more than five minutes ahead. He just says what sounds good and doesn't think about how hypocritical it is. And you are right that uh, his his relationship with the sex industry is is very uh, con- contrary to his wider political opinions. And he is, he is obviously a massive hypocrite. Hmm. Well, I think I think maybe to round the conversation off, then I want to tie those two things in because there is pressure from Nick Fletcher to create a minister for men. And I think he's very well mm. qualified to do it considering he he has a vocation program for aspiring electricians. He's actually trained these boys up. You know, he's, he's a nice yeah. dude. So he set, he's putting together an itinerary and I know some of the people that are trying to help him with it and they're really well-intentioned. So I was going to ask you what you you want on that that particular itinerary. But there's also... For the minister for men. Yeah, there's yeah. there's also the... The idea that we've just had this very detailed, interesting conversation where we're rattling stats off and we're, we're very enmeshed in the discourse. But something mm. that I'm quite wary of, and I was wary of this at ARC, and I've actually been brought round to this idea because of the sort of trad wife meme on TikTok, and that is a lot of people don't respond to ideas, they respond to incentives. And so what kind of cultural incentives are we allowing people to unconsciously soak up so they can have a good life. And I feel like a lot of the time, people have refrained from judgment because they don't want to offend people. And so we've got a very hands-off culture and we're expecting people to make meaning ex nihilo for themselves. And so not only what are the policy priorities, but do you think we have a kind of privileged bias here as quite intelligent, politically-minded men to say, well, maybe you can create new avenues of meaning, whereas lots of people are just sort of trying to get along in life by following what's handed down to them. Do we not really have an obligation to, to maybe say, actually, these roles might make you happy, you might want to fulfill them, and here's how? Yeah, well, I guess the key word, the operative word is there, there is might make you happy. And I, I, again, I would encourage any, any man or boy to pursue as many different avenues as he thinks is right for him and to sort of act accordingly as a result of that. Um, I just don't think we should be taking options off the table. We shouldn't be stamping. It's difficult because I do believe there is such a thing as masculinity. And I do think we should be proud of things men have done historically. And I do think they're not entirely culturally based. And I do feel there's a huge um, biological cause of that. But at the same time, I wouldn't want to limit it to that either. So I'm, I'm very much in the middle. I can sympathize with both sides. And it would require a lot longer conversation we're able to have here to work out how delineated that is. Mm. And I'm willing to change my mind on some of it. Um, but to have a more matter-of-fact conversation about the Minister for Men, I think one of the things I find most interesting is that how few people support it. I've seen polls by like different, I think Good Morning did a poll and like the majority of people didn't support it. I listened to radio interviews with Nick Fletcher on it and people calling him, calling him all sorts of absurd things. And it really opened my eyes to how not only ignorant, but hostile people are towards the even discussion of men and boys issues. That is a big, that's the big takeaway from me. But uh, the big issues I want to see are male suicide, for example. I feel like male suicide is the culmination of very different, lots of different issues. Um, and 
if we're going to talk about priorities, the biggest risk to my life and your life and the life of any man under 50 in the UK is suicide. So it's hard to think of a priority not bigger than that one. But then, of course, I want to also talk about boys in education, especially. And I want. I also I don't want the issues to be discussed on their own. I want the people who have obfuscated those issues and stood in the way of progress to be pointed out and like exposed that there are people who have made it their life's work to make sure this this conversation we're having having does not happen. And I want some sort of apology or at least acknowledgement for what they've done or not done. Because the problem with men and boys issues is not necessarily the issues themselves. It's the people that are guarding them and are throwing mud at you and calling you misogynist if you ever dare speak about them. That's like the ogre in front of the door. I see that. So we need to go through the door, but we also need to confront the ogre who has stopped us from having this discussion for so long. That's what I want to see. That requires a lot of bravery, more bravery than our politicians are capable of, unfortunately. But that's what I want to see. Um, I also think more generally, as uh, an actual classical liberal, I don't think the solution even necessarily comes from government. I feel like it's down to us on an individual basis as communities to support men and boys and solve the problem ourselves. Um, not on, a, on an individual basis, but as, as communities, as families, as groups, because the government are just remind me again and again and again of how incompetent they are. And I just don't trust them. I don't believe in their competency at all. So I'd be nice to have a minister for men, but I don't think that would be the be all and end all of solutions. It's just be nice to have a minister for men as there is for a minister for women. There's three different ministers actually for women. There's a minister for women, a minister for women's health, and then a newly found ambassador for women's health. All three governmentally appointed positions, none of, none of which exist for men. And I feel like there's a, there's a big argument that all three of those positions should, should exist, especially men's health being in the toilet. Like COVID showed us that. COVID showed us how many excess male deaths there were like men dying at 1.6 times the rate as women. Very little was said about it. Nothing was said about it. And I know that because I was actually working on a campaign that targeted other at-risk groups to COVID and no one ever talked about men. And it was, it was again, just a massive betrayal and denial of, of reality. Mm. Substantive retribution for the careers of those who have ignored yeah. all of those dead, fatherless and dispossessed yeah. men for quite some time. Right. Harriet Harman would be a, a, a name I want to see on that list of apologies i think and a few others that we can name on another, another podcast maybe yeah well you've got an open invitation to uh, to come back anytime okay. mate we'll have to have you in the studio with the lads sometime yeah we've got we've got a thursday afternoon series called lads hour where we just sit around talking bollocks and having a few drinks so you'll have to come yeah yeah for it at some point i love but to yeah have a, thanks very yeah, much for great. this uh where, where can everyone find you then i'm i'm i mean i'm almost solely on instagram at the minute i mean i'm just one person people seem to think it's a whole team of us doing this and it's not it's just me and i do it on the side on top of a very strenuous job anyway so i don't have time to be doing instagram um tiktok and twitter and everything else so i am just on instagram and that is the tin men one word um and from there there are other things you can find but instagram at tin men and uh look forward to seeing you there yeah what, what uh by the way what inspired the name is it the, is it the actual wizard of oz reference yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, what inspired the name was the fact that first of all, I can't use my real name because yeah. the amount of hostility you get is too much. So it had to be a pseudonym. But the the, the concept behind the pseudonym was, uh, yeah, it's a throwback to the Wizard of Oz and the Tin Man who joins Dorothy on her journey, and she's he's looking for his own heart. He's the Tin Man, but at the end of the story, he finds out he already had a heart the whole time. And I'm like, that's a very nice metaphor, I think, for men who are told by the whole world that we don't have a heart. And we're sort of soulless 
creatures. But if you actually look deep enough, you'll see that every man has a heart and we're all tin men. And that's where the name came from. Well, that's really heartwarming. Uh, we'll be good to talk <laughs> to you again sometime. Good, good, to, good, to, yeah. good to see you at uh, another event, mate. And, and hopefully for yeah, yeah. our audience, that was heartwarming yeah. and wholesome and you yeah, know, yeah. something new. So Absolutely. Sounds great. Thank you all very much for watching. And until next time, goodbye.